Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton, and I'm the host of this show. I am very grateful to have you as a listener today. As you listen today, or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. Acting on that can and will bring blessings and joy to you and that person that comes to mind. I'm very excited to continue this very special to me 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. This series is called Journey in Recovery, and I've interviewed many different people from many different places and different backgrounds on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot for the next several weeks, whether you or I are an actual addict or not. I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives, and I just want to take a second here and just say how much these last several weeks have really changed my life, my own perspective, and my own acceptance of people with weakness, with perceived weakness, people who are really battling hard to do something about that weakness. And I think that these episodes, not the episodes themselves, but the content and the people within these episodes can and will helps so many people who allow it to happen. So I invite you to listen to these things with an open heart and open mind and see if it's something that you need help with or something that perhaps you could help others with. It's a fantastic um, set of tools that we have to help people who just really, really struggle with addiction, habits, self-destructive or unwanted behavior. Now these, these behaviors or addictions can include anything from full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, including prescription medications, or as the last couple of weeks, we've talked to some lust addicts or sex addicts. And it could also include anything like cutting or eating disorders, or something seemingly insignificant or minor or really ubiquitous as smartphones, video games, and social media. This week, we will be talking with Wendy F., another lustaholic or sexaholic, In this conversation, we explore her life experience that led her to an eventual awakening. We discuss what it means to find the core of an addiction and how it differs from many of the ancillary or appendages to to an addiction. We discuss a new life with a higher power, God, and with the absolute power of having a sponsor to help you walk through the steps of recovery. This is another powerful conversation that will help break the stigma of addiction if you allow it to. Now, there are some topics in this conversation that may be a little bit more adult-related. We try and keep it clean, and it is clean, but you may want to filter it and not listen to it with kids around. That's your choice, obviously. Now, if this is your first episode of the series or of this podcast as a whole, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to all of the previous episodes in this Journey in Recovery series at some point. Those episodes started January 6th of 2020, and there are 12 steps of recovery, and they're in a prescribed order for a reason. So whether you do that now or after you listen to this episode, I really do invite you to listen to the others and then continue with steps 10 through 12 after this one over the next several weeks. Step 9 reads, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. In this and other conversations, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered 
or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your whole life, but these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible, using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true to these people sharing them. While you listen, take mental or even physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now kick back, hit the road, work out, do house or yard work or whatever you do while listening to podcasts, and be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go with Wendy F. I am sitting here with Wendy F. through the magic of uh, the internet, and I'm grateful that you're willing to sit down with me, Wendy. Why don't you introduce yourself as you would as if you were in a 12-step meeting? Sure. Okay. Hi, I'm Wendy. Uh, I'm a sexaholic. I live in Colorado. Um, My sobriety date is November 7th of 11. And I'm very grateful for that. Awesome. Thank you, Wendy. It's good to have you here. All right. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Wendy. What what is your, as you go back and and share your story of, of addiction in your life, tell me kind of where things started and what happened there. Okay. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, I'm pretty sure I was born to be a sexaholic. I was born into, um, well, the the short version is my dad was a Marine in Vietnam and went AWOL Mm. and we moved up to Canada. And um, that's when a lot of people started coming in in our house, in and out. He was uh, instrumental in helping other soldiers who had went AWOL to come mm-hmm. up and find jobs and get fake IDs and that kind of stuff. So a lot of men started coming in and out of the house. And uh, of course it was uh, not to age myself, but it was in the sixties. Mm-hmm. So I was really exposed to not only sexual activity, but the emotions and the environment um, that come along with that just because you know, I was in the middle of all of that with my parents. So, Mm. you know, I can remember times when, you know, I would come out of my room with my pillow over my head and say, shut up. Mm. (laughs) Like I was the adult, you know, and I'm pretty sure that's where my voyeurism started because I used to sneak out and watch, uh, watch all of it. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that's where a lot of my uh, my behaviors are basically I mimicked I mimicked my mom and my dad and you know I learned how to manipulate and use and objectify people in that in that environment and when we moved back to the states I was basically a loner because I grew up in an, in a house with no electricity no indoor plumbing mm-hmm. you know we were on the run we lived in multiple places, a van, a, a tent. I mean, we just, we lived all over. And when we came back to the States, um, I was a loner. I was an outcast. I talked funny and, you know, I didn't know anybody. And so I learned pretty quickly how to get friends. And that was mm-hmm. through alcohol, drugs, and sex, because in my house, all that stuff was totally fine. Hmm. So anyway, that's where kind of my, a little bit of my background, uh, where it all came from. Well, good. Thanks for sharing that. So sounds like you had a pretty, I mean, it, it didn't sound like you were aware that it was different, but it wasn't a normal 
no. uh, upbringing for what most people would experience. Is that correct? Not at all. Not at all. How old were you when you moved back to the States and started interacting with the public again? Uh, I was about in third grade. Okay. So you were only like seven or eight years old, huh? Yeah. Yeah. A little. Yeah. Wow. So, so as you experienced those things at such a young age and you mentioned that you learned how to get friends through alcohol and drugs and sex is how did that affect your teenage years, your young adult years? Mm. <laughs> uh, well, um, well, let's just say I don't remember a lot of it. <laughs> mm. I started um, doing a lot of drugs when I was in my teenage years. And so there's a lot of that that I don't remember, but I can tell you, and that's kind of one of the effects is that I can't remember. Like mm. I wish I could remember a lot of that stuff, but I can't. And um, I always dated older guys. So I, you know, the guys in high school with me were not attractive to me. I liked the older guys cause they could get alcohol, they could mm. get drugs. Um, and I could manipulate them with sex because they were older. So, but your, your conclusion is that your core addiction is sex and not alcohol or drugs, right? Yes. The alcohol and drugs just kind of intensified the sexual addiction. Hmm. It, it took away all my inhibitions or reasonable thinking. <laughs> hmm. So um, where, where did you start to realize, hey, I may have a problem with some of these things that are going on? <laughs> kind of funny. I never really thought I had a problem. You know, in my household, all this stuff was normal our religion was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So I never really had a feeling that it was wrong. I always thought that um, either people were also doing it or wanted to be doing it. Um, I had manipulated my husband into allowing other people into our life. And I always thought, oh yeah, everybody wants to be like me, you know? And yeah. um, it wasn't until uh, my husband caught me cheating. Uh, it was like the fourth time that I had been caught. Mm -hmm. And even then, even then I still didn't admit it. I found a, uh, I was watching TV and I saw them talking about sex addiction. And my first thought was, Oh, I can tell him that I'm an addict and I'm sick. And then he can't leave me. Mm. Even going into the program was like one big manipulation. And it wasn't until you know, I came into the program trying to save my marriage. And after not very long, I realized I was there to save my life. So whether my marriage survived or not was, you know, a, a different question. So that thought of uh, being in a sex addict had never even crossed your mind until you saw it on TV. About how long ago was that? About nine years ago. I've been in the program for about nine years. Uh -huh. uh, my first year of sobriety, I wasn't really working the program. Right. <laughs> an ego. But anyway, yeah. But you were just basically doing it then to save your marriage. It wasn't necessarily to. No, I didn't want to change. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry all the time, but I never really meant it. So was rock bottom when you were caught by your husband that fourth time or, or was it a little bit later when you had a, maybe a come to come to myself, you know, yeah. an awakening moment? Yeah. Well, I think the bottom started when my husband, with my husband, because 
like I said, this wasn't the first time and I was positive that he was going to leave. I, I knew that this time I couldn't convince him to stay with just my old, you know, manipulations. Mm. And then I think the real rock bottom hit, like you said, when I um, started working and working step one really is when I realized, wow, <laughs> this is not normal. <laughs> You know, so I think that we're starting to work. Step one was probably the end of my bottom and then the beginning of the new life. So. So, so let me kind of do a little separation here. I mean, sex is the core of the addiction, but alcohol and drugs have always played a major part in, in that. Mm-hmm. Is alcohol and drugs, is that something you have also stepped away from? Tell, tell oh, me yeah. a little bit about your experience with that and why and when you stepped away from those also. Yeah, well, it's kind of weird because it wasn't difficult. Like some people that are alcoholics or drug addicts or whatever are have a difficult time. For me, I just walked away. Hmm. Like I didn't like being drunk anymore. I didn't want to feel drunk. I want to be able to talk and and I don't want to just go to bed. Usually when I would drink, I'm just tired. Also, I used to go out to bars a lot and drink and that I would get into a lot of trouble with that um, because when I would drink, I would just, all my inhibitions would just go out the window. So after being in the program, it didn't take me very long and I just quit. I just quit drinking and doing, you know, I had quit doing drugs probably like, I don't know, 15 years prior, but I had still been drinking. I just, once I just walked away, I just knew that I didn't want to, I knew that that was contributing greatly to my sex addiction. Yeah, very interesting. So I want to go back to the 15 years prior when you quit drugs. What made you decide to do that then? Really, I had been doing a lot of cocaine. And I, I don't know, it was like one day I just went in the bathroom and I looked at my face and I was just all sunken face and gray and I looked out and there were all these people in the house that I didn't really know. They were only there because of drugs, you know, and I just decided right then that this is not, this is not, I don't know how to explain it. I just, I packed up all my stuff from my boyfriend's house and drove off in a car yelling and screaming at him. (laughs) Wow. And, And that was the last time you did drugs at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It was just like a uh, I'm I'm sick of this. I don't want this anymore. Right. I'm walking away. That's so right. that right there also is proof that to me that drugs and then alcohol weren't the core of your addiction. No. Yeah, if you're just able to walk away and say that's it. That doesn't sound like addict. No. Drug addict or alcoholism. So very very interesting. Thank you for sharing these these details. I think they'll be very helpful for a lot of people who hear this that Good. An addict is an addict, but just because I'm addicted to one thing doesn't mean that all the other things that that may be around are I'm, I'm addicted to. They're just kind of ancillary or maybe appendages to the core and got to figure out what the core is, right? Yep. Yep. Very good. So let's talk a little bit. You mentioned earlier that in your household growing up, your religion was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And since recovery is a spiritual program as well as a physical program, tell me about your spirituality now, your awakening to that and what your higher power means to you now and everything like that. Yeah, so I didn't really have a concept of God. As I told you, I had no idea. Um, Really what happened for me was I did a lot of acting as if. 
So uh, my sponsor would say, I want you to pray. And I would be like, well, okay. I don't, and I, a lot of times I would feel like I was talking to myself, yeah. you know, because I wasn't aware of that presence up there. So I would just do it and I would just act as if I believed. And it just like it says in the, the literature after a while, I really did believe it. I did start to believe that there was a higher power and that um, he cared about me and that um, I was now protected. I remember in the beginning telling my little girl inside that, you know, we have God now. We don't need all of this icky other stuff. And really, I don't I don't go to church. I don't have like a specific religion. Mm-hmm. My spirituality is um within other people and within nature. So I experience God that way now. Mm. And I do a lot of praying. I do a lot of the regular prayers that, you know, the, the written prayers, but really my biggest moments with God are when I'm just talking from my heart. Like, even if I'm not happy, I'll say, God, I'm not happy with you right now, <laughs> you know, and, right. and it's okay. I'm human. That's going to happen. Now I live on the front range of the Rockies. And when I walk out my door, the first thing I see is this huge mountain. Mm. And that's my reminder. Oh, hey, God, good to see you today. Mm. You know, that makes me feel like whoop, I'm like this big in God's whole plan, you know. Yeah. So oh, that's really neat. Thank you for sharing that. What um do you remember the first time when you were just acting as if when you're praying, when you felt like, oh there's really something here that's that's bigger than me. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what happened in that case. Again, I was I was on the phone with my sponsor and I was whining and crying because, you know, financial insecurity. We were broke and we still had like 2 weeks until payday and I had no money for gas, whatever, and I was just whining to her on the phone and she said, "You need to get on your knees and pray." And I said, "Well, what how's that going to help? I, you know, I need money. I don't need mm. prayer." any money. And she said, just do it. Just get on your knees and pray that you will trust that you will be provided for and that he will never let you down. And so I did it. And again, it was just like, I don't know how this is going to help, but honestly, this is, this is a true story. Um, later on I went and I, I was getting ready for bed and I put my bathrobe on and in the pocket of my bathrobe, I found $30. I don't even know where it came from because (laughs) I don't put money in my bathrobe, you know, but that was the moment when I went, oh my gosh, this is a spiritual, this is a a divine intervention right here. And I believe it now. So it was almost like I needed something physical to happen before I could have blind faith. And and your reaction was, whoa, whoa, in my, in my pocket. Yeah. Tell me how you shared that experience with your sponsor and with others, like within a day or two after it happening. Well, I mean, I called my sponsor right away. As soon as I did that, I I called her right away and said, you were right. You were right. God does provide for me. He will always provide for me. And um, sometimes when I share that story, I think people are like, (laughs) yeah, right. And especially newcomers, you Mm -hmm. know, that don't have that experience, but I share it because it's, it's how I came to, you know, in the second step, we talk about coming to, and that was how I came to, and I share it. And I hope that it touches people in a way that it touched me. And if it, you know, if it doesn't, that's okay. 
Um, but that's my experience and I share it because it really was impactful to me. Wow. That's really cool. And we'll get to step nine here, but I want to sit on that for just a minute and talk about that. You said that you came to and you knew at that point that God does provide and he will always provide. How has your life been provided for since then? Um, Well, anytime I'm in distress, I try to surrender whatever it is I'm distressful over to God. And um, I can tell you that in experiences with my kids, you know, being a mom is hard because I want to be in control. (laughs) Yeah. But um, in my experience with my kids, for instance, um, my one son was getting in a lot of trouble and I was trying to force an outcome. I was trying to, you know, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. And I mean, I was driving myself crazy. I was crying and why won't he listen, you know, and it dawned on me that, oh, I don't have to do this. I am not his higher power. He has his own higher power. And so I started surrendering it and it wasn't immediate, but within a couple of months, his grades were going up. We were getting along better um, because I was just letting it be. I wasn't trying to be God anymore in his life. Mm. So it was like, I could just watch God working. It was a miracle. I I literally could watch it happening. <laughs> so did you go completely hands off at that point or did you, were you still, these are more parenting questions than recovery yeah. questions here. Yeah. <laughs> or were you still kind of trying to help guide just letting God do the path? How did you, how did you do that? Um, well, a lot of times it was hard actually, because oh, like, believe it. as a parent, you want to be able to provide everything for your child, but I wasn't completely hands off. I'm human. Right. I always try to take my will back even today. Um, and so I, I would definitely, it was like, I would realize all of a sudden I would go, Oh shoot, here's what I'm doing. And I'm not supposed to be doing that. Hmm. I'm supposed to be praying and relying on God to help me with this. And so it was almost like slowly it became a habit. Hmm. And were you communicating this to your son during this time saying, Hey, I'm just turning you over to God right now. Or, or how, how was your communication with him at that point in this process? Uh, we don't really talk a lot about God. And I don't think I actually really shared a lot of that with him. Now that I think about it, um, I would just, you know, there were times when I would just go up and hug him and say, I'm so glad that, you know, you're doing so well right now. You should be really proud of yourself. And, mm. and so I didn't really ever say God's got you. You know, we didn't really talk about really because we're not a religious family either. We mm-hmm. don't have a lot of religion here either. I just basically, I just loved him through it. You know, hmm. I don't know how else to explain it. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Let's go back to recovery stuff. Okay. And I'm going to go back to your first meeting or first series of meetings you went to. Tell me what your thoughts were and feelings were the first time you walked through a door into a, into a room. Uh, well, wow. I'm the only woman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was my first thought. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest with you. When I first walked in and sat down, I was scanning the room. Mm. Like I was like, okay, who in here can I manipulate? Who's the best looking guy? And it was really sick. Um, but what happened was I, I kept going And eventually I was so relating to these men that they became like my brothers. Mm. And 
I got feedback from a lot of them as far as, wow, I'm so glad you stayed because a lot of them in the beginning were like, oh my gosh, there's a woman in the room. What am I supposed to do? And so I got a lot of feedback that, you know, they really learned a lot from me. I think it's important to be in a mixed meeting. I mean, I need to learn how to relate to the opposite sex in a non-sexual way. And I can't Mm. do that in a room full of women. Not that I don't have my women. (laughs) Right, right. So, you know, this was nine-ish years ago. Are you seeing more women in the fellowship now than you did then? Um, Not in physical meetings. Mm. Not in physical meetings. But I have a huge uh, fellowship of women around the world because I do phone meetings. I use uh, WhatsApp to keep in touch. I I have women that I talk to that are in Israel, um, Iran. And so my fellowship of women is huge. It's just not um, like we don't get to go out for coffee like the guys do. Hmm. You know, after the meeting, the guys all go do whatever they do. And I don't, I don't go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the really the main thing that I think I miss out on is being able to take off and go sit with somebody, but I can still do that just like how we're doing this now. Right. Well, that's, that's really cool. So is your fellowship SA, SAA? What, what is your fellowship? I'm, I feel strongly that I'm an SA and the reason is SAA and some of the other S programs let you define your own sobriety. Okay. I'm an addict. I can justify, rationalize, you know, whatever. And so when I, cause I did start in one of those other programs and I wasn't getting anywhere like, I, cause I could just say, well, I'm just texting. I'm not like meeting up with anybody, you know, and that's not crossing my bottom line. Well, I am the kind of person that needs a solid sobriety definition and that's what I get in essay. So what is the, for the, for the benefit of, of others who are listening to this, who aren't aware of that, what is that solid sobriety definition of SA? Uh, so the definition basically is no sex outside of marriage and no sex with self. You know, that's it. And I, the other thing that I will mention is that one of the first things that I have to do is admit that I'm powerless over lust because mm-hmm. lust is the driving force behind all of my sexual misbehavior. You know, I want to lust. I want people to desire me. And, you know, there's a whole definition of what lust is, but I think yeah. that's, you know, that's my main issue. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. So, so we've talked a little bit about your first steps into, into recovery your your rock bottom, some of the motivating factors that drove you. We talked about when you first went, you were just there to save the marriage and it eventually changed. When did kind of the light bulb really turn on to, to say, hey, I'm in this and, and this is the right thing for me to be doing? Um, again, I, I would have to say probably after completing step one. Um, and then I think I really, it was when I, I guess it would have to say it was step two, because that's when I really started to feel like I had a higher power. And for me, this whole program is based on how I live in my higher powers will. Well, good. So let's, let's go to the step that we talked about discussing here, which is step nine. But what I want to do is I want to read I want to read from the book of Alcoholics Anonymous steps 8 and 9 because they they are 
hand in hand. I mean, you can't do step nine without really having done well all the other steps, but step eight are hand in hand. So step eight reads, made a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Um, before I read step nine, were there people on your step eight list that it was really hard to become willing to make amends to? Oh, yes. Um, mainly uh, my abuser because I was sexually molested. So my abuser was, he was on the list um, because my sponsor told me any negative feelings about people, just put them on the list. It doesn't mean at that point that I have to make amends. Mm -hmm. It just means that I'm getting it out of my head. And so, yeah, there were definitely people on there. And of course, there's people on there that I can't make amends to, whether they're dead or you know, for whatever reason. So mm -hmm. in those cases, I do a lot of living amends. I think that it was, I, I really realized how many people I hurt. You know, there's a part in the literature that talks about the addict being a tornado raging through everybody and causing so much destruction. And I think that was something that, you know, brought me to my knees too. Do you mind if we talk a little bit about that, the abuser that, that was the one that you mentioned as being really hard to, yeah. to become willing to make amends with? Part of this process is seeing what my part in that is, you know, the tornado thing. And with that abuser, what, what did you determine was, or were you able to determine what your part in that was? Mm -hmm. Or how do you go about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, that was really hard. And I think that what I came to the conclusion was that my part was that I carried that resentment into every relationship in my life. And I didn't have any part in him abusing me. I was five years old, right? Mm -hmm. so the only thing I did was pack away that resentment and carry it around and, and it would just bleed over into every other relationship that I had. As far as for actually forgiving him, um, it came down to the point, and I, I think this is in step eight, but, you know, we realize that these people are sick too. And I, when I look back at how he grew up, I mean, it's really no surprise what he turned into. Hmm. And so I have to look at, at that as him as a sick person who needs help. And after having, you know, by the time I got to step eight, I was solidified in you know, making a new way of life for me and my family. And I was solidified in, you know, I'm working this program. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And if that means I have to forgive him, then I have to forgive him because I can't, I can't live a free life when I'm carrying around that stuff, you know? Yeah. And that's such a powerful and difficult thing to do. Yes. That didn't happen overnight. <laughs> no. Man, thank you for sharing that. I, I mean, so many people, and myself included, and you know, possibly you included, live in such a victim mentality when something like that happens in our lives. Yes. You know, woe is me. That mm -hmm. person did this to me. That person betrayed me. That person did that. And I will never let it go. And I'm going to hold those resentments and make it affect everything else. Well, it's a righteous you know, it's a righteous resentment because it's true. I should feel bad about him doing that, you know, but because I'm not able to handle self-righteous anger in any form of a healthy way, 
Mm. I have to let it go. That's such an interesting thing you said there because you said, because I'm not able to handle righteous anger in a way that's helpful. I have to let it go. Have you run into many people that can handle righteous anger or righteous resentments in a healthy way? That's a good question. Um, I think that there are people out there. I've worked with people Mm -hmm. that are able to, you know, dissect a a situation that's painful or um, destructive or um, not productive. Um, And so I have seen people who I call it quote normal Mm -hmm. uh, behaviors, but it's not very often. I mean, I think that, that even though if they're not sex addict, I think that relating to people is still a difficult thing. Hmm. All right. Um, Is there anything else on that little bit before we jump into step nine that you think it would be helpful to share for me or anybody else listening? Yeah. um, Another way that I made amends for my abuser is by indirect amends. Uh, So he was very abused as a child himself. So I will donate items to programs that help people who need that, you know, um, because I think I'm going to start getting choked up. If he would have had the help that he needed, it probably wouldn't have affected, he wouldn't have affected me in that way. So I, part of my amends is trying to help people get what they need. And that's also part of this program. So it works out well. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Okay, so step nine reads, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So tell me what that means to you and some of the processes. I mean, you mentioned indirect amends, you mentioned living amends. We'll talk about direct amends. We'll talk about whatever you want to here. But tell me a little bit about why step nine was a powerful process for you. For one thing, I was able to say I was wrong. I did a lot of saying I'm sorry, which really didn't mean a whole lot. If I say I'm wrong, it's a lot more powerful to me and somebody else. Uh, So, and the other part of it is it's, I don't know how else to explain. It's kind of like a self-imposed jail. Like you feel like you're in this jail. And as soon as I start to, admit my wrongs, forgive people, try to make up for any harm I've done. Uh, I feel like the doors just open and I'm out and I'm free. I don't have that guilt, that shame, um, that fear that someone's going to go, why did you do that? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's, I don't have that when I make amends is it's like the guilt just evaporates. And whether that person is receptive to the amends or not doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I'm doing it so that I can start a new way of life, which is being honest and having integrity and, you know, caring about people instead of just looking at them as objects or, you know, things to be manipulated. Yeah. I love how you stated, you know, I've said I'm sorry a million times before and it carries no weight. Right. But when I say I'm wrong it carries a lot more weight and authority with it. What, why do you think that is? Um, because number one, I'm admitting and I'm not, and I'm not blaming. I'm not justifying. I'm not um, being self-righteous or in self-pity. I'm not a victim. 
And that's that's probably what I would say is that it's, you know, it's a freeing feeling. I don't know how else to explain it. I will say with another thing with regarding to um, amends is it doesn't have to be this big grand gesture. It doesn't have to be a five page letter, you know, saying every single thing I did. Hmm. So, yeah, we can talk about that because one of the uh, the greatest amends that I made was to my husband and it was on a piece of paper that was like a paragraph long. Mm. No, that's awesome. Let's talk about the different types of amends there are. I mean, you did mention, um, to, uh, you mentioned indirect amends and living amends. Tell me first, what are living amends? What And when would be appropriate individuals or times to use living amends as your way of making amends? Well, um, when I'm making living amends, it's not something that I go, okay, I'm done. I've made that amends. Because what I consider a living amends is a, a constant changing of my attitude, a constant changing of how I relate to people. So it's not like, okay, uh, I'm sorry. And now that's over. A living amends means that I have changed my behavior. I have changed my attitude. You know, like I said, I'm, I, I can actually listen to people and not just sit there and wait for myself to justify whatever they're saying. You know, I could actually listen to people. And I do things like I now know the things that are important to my husband. So he is all I really need to do is show him a tiny bit of affection. And, you know, that's a living amends. Things like, like I would never want to sit next to him or hug him or anything because God forbid anybody think I'm not available. And mm. now I just, and it is, it's another one of those where if you act as if eventually it just becomes normal, like sitting next to him and just putting my hand on his knee. That's something that is important to him. That's a living amends. Um, and I have to continue to do that. So it's just, to me, living amends is just changing my behavior and my attitude from one of ego to God. That was powerful. And I, Something you mentioned in there really struck a chord with me, and I can't, uh, it'll come back to my mind at some point in the middle of another con- Oh, the listening. You, you said you can now listen to people. Mm-hmm. And when you said that, that really struck a chord. I mean, uh, much of my life, I, I, I think I've always had a gift to be able to listen to people, but I used it so, and I still, I think I still sometimes use it so sparingly or targeted only in certain places where maybe I can feel I can manipulate something out of somebody. Man, that was kind of a two before upside the head that I'm going to have to do some pondering on. <laughs> Thank you for, for, for swinging that two before at me. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> All right. So we talked a little bit about living amends. Is there anything else though, that you feel is important to share about living amends before moving on to a different kind of amends? No, I mean, I think that's pretty much it. You know, the living amends to me just means that I'm uh, more of a channel for God's love. Um, so if I'm doing that, God's not going to be uh, harmful to people, you know. All right. So let's talk about the next one you mentioned earlier, indirect amends. Tell, tell me a little bit about what indirect amends are and how that works. So part of the step, as you read, is except where to cause harm, right? So to right. others. And so that's where I feel like indirect amends are appropriate. For instance, you know, I I spent a lot of time, um, one night stand. I mean, there's a lot of people that 
are faceless. Mm-hmm. And so in order for, I, I can't go and find all of those people, you know, to make direct amends. So uh, I, I, the indirect amends I make is again, by performing some sort of service that relates to that, you know, for instance, it talks about a guy who um, prays for every prostitute he sees, you know, mm-hmm. there's something in the literature about that. So um, I do a lot of that. I pray for those people to have what I want, you know, what God's given me. And that is an indirect amends. It's a, it's a fine line because you have to know if the amends, it may not hurt the person that's sitting in front of you, but maybe down the line, you know, the domino effect, it's going to hurt their wife or their child, you know? And so the indirect amends are very important at that point too. The main thing I will say also is Without the guidance of a sponsor, there's absolutely no way I could have done this. Mm. Absolutely no way. I would have been able to just justify away. And, you know, I, like I said in the beginning, I never thought I did anything wrong. So without a sponsor, I'm just another uh, dry drunk, basically. Mm. Yeah. And and the, the indirect amends and the living amends seem to really kind of go almost yeah. hand in hand. They coordinate pretty well with that tell me another type of amends and then discuss that i know we've got direct and we've got uh, at least my understanding like letters not to be sent would be another right. one that yeah um i never did the letters thing okay. you know uh, as far as other indirect amends yeah it's just for me it's just doing the good that I can do now. I mean, it's, it's being able to be the, the person that God wants me to be um, today. And that to me is also a living amends. You know, I'm not in ego anymore. I'm not manipulating. I'm not objectifying. Not to say I try to do it because I'm human again, (laughs) but uh, my living amends is that I'm not doing that. My indirect amends, I should say, is that I'm not, having those behaviors anymore. And like you said, that kind of goes hand in hand with the living amends. Um, But in that regard, I can be specific as far as, like I said, you know, if I'm donating to a company that would help those kind of people or, you know, even just praying for them, Mm -hmm. uh, that's an indirect amends. But yeah, it's, it's hard because it is, it's a fine line between that and living amends. All right. I appreciate that. Now let's talk about direct amends. Um, what are those? And then t- tell me about maybe your feelings going into maybe the first time you made a direct amends with somebody and then maybe a scarier one that you did and the results of those. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the ones that I did that I would have to say, well, my first amends was to my husband. And I guess I would probably say that was the scariest as well. Hmm, interesting. Just because I, I, I wanted it to be perfect, right? Mm. I, I wanted him to know exactly how I felt about what I did. I wanted him to know that it, you know, it really made an impact on me, how he was affected. Uh, my amends to him was really, it ended up being very simple. I think what happens and what happened with me is we look at this step as a whole and we, oh my gosh, how am I going to do all of this? So it was important for me to just take, 
take it one thing at a time, one person at a time on my list and refer back to that eight step list. And, you know, am I doing the direct events to the people I can do? And one of the other ones that was really scary was I had a, a really good friend that I basically used, um, you know, we, we would always go out for ladies night and it was, I mean, anyway, basically I just used her a lot. And so, you know, making amends to her, well, we hadn't talked in probably 15 years, mm. and we had a big falling out. So I was scared. I was scared to talk to her. And quite honestly, I didn't do it face to face because she's in Oregon and I'm in Colorado. Um, but at the moment, I didn't do it face to face. But the first time I went back to Oregon, the first chance I had, I went to her. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything that I did. It was wrong of me to expect you to act this way for my behalf, on my behalf. And ironically, all of that fear vanished. And, the, and what she said was water under the bridge. Huh. You know, I expected her to have this, yeah, well, you shouldn't have done this and you shouldn't have done that reaction. And that I think is part of direct amends that is surprising to a lot of people is sometimes either they don't remember, you know, like my brother, when I made amends to my brother, he didn't really, he's like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? Um, or they discover that they had a part in it as well. And just the feeling of forgiveness is so powerful. Mm. So um, I think for everybody, the direct amends really provides that powerful freedom. Did you have any uh, experiences making direct amends where it really didn't go very smoothly, where the response was not positive or were almost all of them pretty, it turned out pretty okay? Yeah, I didn't really have um, anybody yell at me. Um, everything, all of my amends really went well. And I honestly, again, I think that was because I had a great sponsor. Mm. Um, when I was writing out my amends, um, she would look it over and say, yeah, that's dumping. That's guilt. Um, Mm. that's blaming, Mm. you know, and I would have to rewrite it. (laughs) Mm. Usually it was the amends, um, to my abuser that she would have to really edit and say, no, that's, that's not right. It sounds like the spot your sponsor helped you make sure that what you wrote and shared with those people was I was wrong rather than I'm mm-hmm. sorry or I was wrong, but here's but, your part in it, you know? Well, <laughs> but part, yeah. <laughs> Cause that 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 concept and that word of but just yeah. shatters the whole process, right? Just basically negates everything you said before that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm saying this, but I don't really mean it because <laughs> this is what I really believe. Right. Because you were a jerk too, by the way. But yeah. Right. yeah. And, in, and in amends, that's not that's not the point. Right. You know, that's not it's not because, you know, that's what I'm trying to get away from. <laughs> right. Uh, see see if this makes sense to you. And I'm I'm seeing this in my mind this way. You know, I'm doing the best I can to clean my side of the street and take care of my side of the street. And then I see the junk that I've thrown on other people's lawns and whatever else figuratively. And then, you know, I'm I'm still cleaning my side of the street, but I have to go over to their side of the street and say, 
I was wrong to put this piece of garbage on your front yard. <laughs> you know, what do I, is there anything I can do to help make that right? Yeah. Or, you know, I was just wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Without saying but the rest of your front yard's a disaster too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My little piece of garbage doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, that is a huge part of making amends is it doesn't matter what the other person has done. It's not, my amends are not directly for that other person. They're for me to be able to open up a new way of life, mm -hmm. an honest life with integrity, um, caring, you know, those kind of things that I didn't have any of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I used to think humility meant I was funny. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Wow. And <laughs> no concept of humility. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> no. So how did that, let's go there for a minute. How, what kind of woke you up to understanding what humility was? Admitting I'm wrong. Hmm. You know, if I'm, if I'm admitting I'm wrong, I'm out of ego, you know, and to me, humility means I'm out of ego. That means hmm. that I'm, I'm there as a channel for God, like I've said before, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what humility really means. I'm able to say I'm wrong and I'm not going to die from mm. it. <laughs> you know, the other thing I really like about humility is I, when I, going back to how I listen to people, I don't have to jump in and say, yeah, but <laughs> I did this and this. And so that was way better. I can actually tell people, wow, that's really great. I'm so glad that happened to you or whatever the situation may be, I can be happy for them and not feel jealous or insecure. And, and that to me is a lot of part of humility too. Hmm. I love that. So how has working your step nine in making amends, how has that, I mean, you, you talked about, at least this is the way I interpreted it, like a burden being taken off as you did that. Tell me how that, how that process went and how that feels to have that burden off your shoulders? Um, well, I guess one of the best ways I can explain it is for my entire life, I had a knot in my stomach. I'm not even kidding. Like it, it was just there. It was always, it just considered it part of my life. I always had a knot in my stomach. And when I started making amends, that knot in my stomach dissolved. Hmm. And I truly believe it was me trying really hard to hold on to my um, justifications and my resentment and um, me, 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 <laughs> you know, um, and trying to protect myself and all of that. And um, when I started trusting God and being able to let go of the guilt was really what was killing me. That was the big burden. That was the bag on my shoulder was you know, the guilt and the shame for the things I had done. And I had no idea that that was what it was. I didn't know that's what the knot in my stomach was until I started working the program. Uh -huh. That's that, I think that's really helpful. So I, I've run into this before in, uh, in rooms where people come in and, and one of the first things that's covered is like a step eight, step nine. And they feel like, Oh, I need to go out and start making amends right now. Hmm. What is your, uh, advice to someone like that that's that that may think oh you know I know I've made done wrong here I'm going to go make this right right now what do you think about that 
Um, I'm going to go back to the value, the value of having a good sponsor because my sponsor was able to, uh, you know, you can't really, in my opinion, I always discourage people from doing that. And the reason is at that point in my recovery, I didn't really know. I mean, I was again, just trying to justify, um, and it was, it wasn't really a true amends because I wasn't really, I was just kind of justifying what I was doing. Yeah. Because somebody new is just going about most likely saying the, Hey, I was wrong there, but justifying, you know, and that was where the, the help of a sponsor was invaluable. You know, a part of it again is not wanting to cause more harm. And that's very, I don't want to say it's very easy for me to do, but it came naturally for me to be that way. Hmm. And so now it's not natural anymore. Hmm. All right. So Wendy, what other words of wisdom about step nine or any other phase of recovery would you like to share with me and the listening audience when they hear this? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest things that I learned was I didn't have to understand everything. And that includes the process of working recovery. Um, There were a lot of times when I didn't understand what, how this was going to help me. You know, well, how is that going to help? Get on your knees and pray. Well, how is that going to help? So I I really think that um, that was one of the big things for me. Um, The other, the other thing that I would say is don't ever try to work the steps alone. Don't ever do it because this disease caused me to be isolated. I consider myself an extroverted introvert. And Mm. what I mean by that is I always surrounded myself with a lot of people. I was the life of the party, but inside I was very insecure. Mm. So basically, um, you know, if, if I'm not working with a group or a sponsor, it's very easy for me to fall back into ego and think that I have all the answers and out of humility. So I think that for me anyway, the most important thing was to have a sponsor to, and other people to hold me accountable. Because as I mentioned, my first year of recovery, I was trying to do it alone. Mm. Like, well, I know how to read. I can read the steps. <laughs> um, and it didn't take long for me to, you know, it was about a year, I guess, before I lost my sobriety. And it wasn't very hard for me to figure out why. Mm. <laughs> so, um, because I, I had no idea what I was doing. And instead of just having the faith that it worked for people that went before me, I I forced myself to try and understand it all. And there's just no way to do that. When you get to step 12, it all kind of accumulates together. And it's like, oh, that's why. That's how this integrates into this. And so not being able to understand it in the beginning was huge for me and to be able to accept that. Um, But definitely one of my main advice for people is don't do it alone. Mm. I love that. I've got two more fairly quick questions. First one is, how do you currently work your step 12? So step 12, um, again, I consider that for me to just be a channel of God on this earth. And um, a couple of things that I do, well, I have a sponsee, so I work with her. And that really is really helpful, really helpful as far as, you know, working a step 12 and really feeling that practicing the principles in all my affairs. That is another thing that I try to do. Um, 
you know, I didn't really understand what that meant. And so I went back and studied the principles. And in fact, I even did a talk on it about what the principles really are and being able to live within that. That's kind of a guide for me to say, this is my, this is how life is going to be from here on. And step 12 work, again, it just really is. It's so freeing. I mean, you think, oh, I'm helping this person. But in reality, it's helping me too. And not in a selfish way. It just happens naturally. I have no explanation for it. Mm -hmm. I have no explanation how God came to me and said, you believe now. (laughs) I have no explanation for that stuff. It just is faith and trust and working with other people to keep me accountable for who I am. I love that. The last question is, there are going to be people that listen to this that are either in denial or maybe have never even considered I'm an addict. I mean, kind of like you, when you heard Mm -hmm. the thing on TV, a sex addiction, huh, there's something there, a new concept I've never thought about. And there may be women who are in similar boats and think, no, that's just a man thing or whatever, you know, I, that's not a, a woman thing. How would you invite someone in, in one of those situations to first start attending a meeting or start reaching out for help? Well, I always suggest going to meetings and I always suggest going, you know, at least five times because you really get an idea of how you're going to feel, I think, at that point in the meetings. But I always suggest if there's even an inkling that there's something wrong, investigate it. It may be nothing. It may be the beginning of a new life for you, like it was for me. You know, it's just if you have that inkling, don't ignore it, investigate it, because you could be missing out I missed out on so much being Mm. so in self and so um, manipulative, you know, I missed out on a lot. And so I really feel like, you know, if you've, if you have an inkling at all, or if you have a question or, and there's so many ways to find out, there's so many resources. I mean, you can go to AA literature. You don't have to be in essay literature. Um, The one thing, other thing that I do is in the front of our essay white book, there are 20 questions Mm. and I will refer people to those 20 questions. You know, is this, do you answer yes to at least three of these? Mm. It might belong in essay. And I don't ever tell someone you belong in essay. You need to do that because I am not their higher power. Right. No, that's great. And I, I just pulled up that, uh, that page there with the 20 questions. So I'm going to post those 20 questions in the show notes of this so that people can look at that and, yeah. and do that on their own. Cause tool, I think to, to determine if you're having issues with, with sex in your life or yeah. lust. Yep. Having issues with lust. Awesome. Well, very good, Wendy. I really, really appreciate you sitting down with me. I mean, this has been a good conversation. I really appreciate it. Good. Yeah. I I appreciate you inviting me, inviting me to do the service again, 12 step work. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Carrying the message. So there you have it. Step nine made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. At the end of this conversation, Wendy F. discussed the 20 questions to consider asking ourselves. There are also questions that you can find and ask yourself about virtually any addiction out there. In fact, 
Just substituting your own suspected issue with the words sex or lust whenever they come up here will give you a good idea. I'm going to read those 20 questions now just for your consideration. Have you ever thought you needed help for your sexual thinking or behavior? That you'd be better off if you didn't keep giving in? That sex or stimuli are controlling you? Have you ever tried to stop or limit doing what you felt was wrong in your sexual behavior? Do you resort to sex to escape, relieve anxiety, or because you can't cope? Do you feel guilt, remorse, or depression afterward? Has your pursuit of sex become more compulsive? Does it interfere with relations with your spouse? Do you have to resort to images or memories during sex? Does an irresistible impulse arise when the other party makes the overtures or sex is offered? Do you keep going from one relationship or lover to another? Do you feel the right relationship would help you stop lusting, masturbating, or being so promiscuous? Do you have a destructive need, a desperate sexual or emotional need for someone? Does pursuit of sex make you careless for yourself or the welfare of your family or others? Has your effectiveness or concentration decreased as sex has become more compulsive? Do you lose time from work for it? Do you turn to a lower environment when pursuing sex? Do you want to get away from the sex partner as soon as possible after the act? Although your spouse is sexually compatible, do you still masturbate or have sex with others? Have you ever been arrested for a sex-related offense? So there's just a few questions to consider in relationship to sexual addiction, but the exact same words can be substituted for any sort of drug, alcohol, really any behavior or substance out there. So anyways, as you consider those things, I invite you to, you know, take some self-inventory, reflect on them, and see if there's something that needs to be done. And if there is, I ask you, act on it. It can and will make all the difference in your life. If Wendy F.'s witness isn't enough to motivate and provide hope to the seemingly hopeless, I hate to think what will be enough. Now, for the housekeeping part of the program, please go and check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Like and follow us. Also check us out on our website, www.jtlpod.com. And I'd be honored if you went and checked those old episodes out before we started the Journey in Recovery series. You can also drop us a note about your own experiences, strength, and hope at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. Now, please visit our sponsors who I purposely did not put at the beginning of this episode or any other for this 12-week series, but they are helping this podcast continue forward. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, radfordpineshomedecor.com. Now at alifeuntold.com, please use promo code JUSTIN to save 10% on your order. And at Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines, use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on your orders there. These conversations that I've been recording in this Journey in Recovery series have been life-changing for me, as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning from these really amazing people who inspire hope, and I am definitely becoming a different and better person for it. I hope you are too.
Have a fantastic week and press forward one day at a time. Mm-hmm.